God sends a plague of serpents, a priest shish kebabs some people, and a donkey outsmarts a prophet. Well, welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith. This is Brandon. We're pastors at Gospel Community Church. Welcome. We're going through the second half of the book of Numbers today, and it's going to be awesome. And just as a side note, the Old Testament is a pretty crazy book. Yeah. If anyone says it's boring, and okay, there are boring sections in the Old Testament, in the Bible. We get it. But by and large, if you're looking at the big picture, it is a crazy book, way better than anything on TV today. So, anyway, we've been getting a question that uh, we think is worth digging into a little bit before we get into the text today. And it does have to do with Judaism and stuff. But the question is, why is there no sacrificial system today for the Jewish people? Why don't they, you know, regularly sacrifice lambs and stuff? So, Brandon, can you answer this question for us? Yeah. So, yeah. And obviously, if you have a question, um, let us know in the comments section of the video. Or, of course, you can always just talk to us or email us if you know us. Um, So, obviously, there's no sacrificial system today because there's no temple. Right. right. That's that's when the sacrifices ended to some degree. There was some debate after the temple was destroyed as to whether people should be sacrificing lambs in their own homes. Mm-hmm. That's what some people, um, I think it was Gamaliel II, uh, was a proponent of that until that got shut down completely. Um, and then for a long time, there was no sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Today, actually, there there are some sacrifices in Israel. When I was there, um, I didn't go to it, but some some friends of mine went to the Samaritan Passover where they do actually sacrifice some sheep, but you can't really get close. But they, the Jewish people, this is a big problem for them, right? Because no sacrifices means no access to God. No temple means no way to commune with God. Right. That's the picture. So what they, a lot of them would say is that Torah, right? Studying Torah and obeying Torah, um, benevolence, that kind of stuff, it supersedes the sacrificial system. So it replaces mm. it. Actually, there's a famous account of two rabbis walking past the destroyed temple not long after it was, it was destroyed. And the, the younger one, the disciple, says to his, his teacher, he says, isn't it a shame that we can't offer sacrifices anymore? And the teacher responds by saying, well, no, we can do something better, which is benevolence. Mm. Right? We, can do, we can do acts of kindness. We can do good deeds. And so you can see how that then sets up a system where for many Jewish people, they believe if I do all these good things, then God will accept me and love me. Right. Um, and it's missing that component of there has to be a sacrifice made for your sins. Right. And right. just you know, coincidentally, this temple was destroyed just a few decades after Jesus died. Right. I mean, right. That the whole picture for us as Christians is pretty clear. The temple is no longer needed because the true temple has come in Jesus. It's it's such an interesting switch, and that's a that's a really like fascinating answer because you know I've had this question too, and you know it is funny though how like the whole point of the temple you know, was obviously to show, like, how God could relate to man, right? And that doesn't, has anything to do with good works, necessarily. I mean, God calls us to live in a certain way and to make good choices and to help others around us and to love one another. Like, He calls us to do that stuff, but the reality is nobody does that stuff perfectly, right? There needs to be a sacrifice. There needs to be some kind of atonement. So it still blows my mind that that's, you know, still not, you know, doesn't seem to be a part of regular Jewish culture today. I know, and as you're reading the book of... Well, all the, the whole Pentateuch, right? The whole first five books yeah. of the Bible. You're seeing again and again that problem of sin. Right. They yeah. are obeying the law, and then they'll grumble, and God punishes them. Sin right. comes up in small ways and in big ways, but it does come up because we are we are sinful. Yeah, and you know, 
what better book to look at uh, the grumblings of you know Israel and uh, the Jewish people than the book of Numbers. So let's recap a little bit on what we've gone over so far in the book of Numbers. Let's just review quickly review chapters 1 through 20, and then we'll get into 20 to the rest of the book today. Yeah, so the name Numbers comes from the census at the beginning and the end. It's really the framework of the entire book, mm-hmm. that the first census is the original people, but they all die off, as we're going to see, and then the second census is a new generation a new army raised up to go into the promised land. Right. So in the middle of the book, we saw this fatal mistake that the Israelites made, which was they sent the spies into the land to mm-hmm. see if it was good, and the spies came back and said, there's giants in the land. Right. We can't conquer it. We're going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go back instead to Egypt. And this is the act of apostasy that is just heinous. Right. So the people, people go with these the 10 spies. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb, stand up and say, no, Right. God is greater than these people. Yeah, they have faith. We will have victory. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the people rebel, and so God, um, the punishment He gives to them is that they'll wander for one year for every day. The spies were in the land spying it out, which is forty years. Right. And He says every single person who is part of this original, you know, uh, Exodus generation, the older people, so the people that were adults at the time, they'll all die off, hmm. and a new generation will be raised up, and that's who's going to go into the promised land. We see that Moses himself even fails as he has this moment of, of pride and, and wrath as he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. Mm-hmm. And God says, because of this sin, you're not going to go into the land either. So Joshua is going to lead the people into the promised land. So that's kind of where we left off in chapter 20. And we're going to get into the second half of the book today. And we're going to see really this, I mean, the key figure in the second half is Balaam. Balaam right. is a really interesting character, so yeah. we'll look at him. Well, let's look at some of those characters and those people groups. So we're getting into chapter, you know, 21, you know, and, you know, it's, again, it's sad that Moses is not going to make it to. That's a big thing. It's, man, this one guy that was kind of leading these people and was always kind of the ever-faithful one becomes unfaithful too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we get Edom introduced you know, into the story right here. What's the deal with Edom? Because there's all these names and these people groups, you know, that, that are talked about. And unless we've been following carefully, it's easy to kind of get lost in who these people groups are. So what's yeah. Edom? So Edom, um, they they were a nation that lived to the east of where Israel ended up, you know, in the promised land. Okay. And Edom is our descendants of Esau, mm-hmm. right? So they're descendants of, of Esau. So if you remember the conflict there between Jacob, Israel, and his twin brother Esau, that led to a lot of problems in Genesis. And so yeah. that fruit of their family relationships or bad relationships right. is, is being worked out here. And Edom is like red too because Esau was red, right? Yeah, exactly. Like that. So that's yeah. kind of his nickname, yeah. his red guy. And he <laughs> traded his birthright for the, a bowl of stew, right? Red stuff. Bummer, man. So, so yeah, so these, these people, there's, there's already tension there. And is, God's going to protect them. We'll see that a lot in this section. This section, right. we see it in a big way. God is protecting his people in spite of their sin. And so they are able to avoid Edom, avoid conflict, and God is keeping them safe. Awesome. Cool. Well, then we have chapter 21. We're getting into it more. Um, um, what are some people groups that we have here? What's going on in chapter 21? Yeah, so we see some different nations. Arad, we see the Amorites, who are a Canaanite people. Mm-hmm. Um, their king is Og, the king of Bashan. Right. So we're seeing these battles that they're, they're fighting and God is protecting them. And this is a, a good indicator to us of 
this was what God was going to do if they had had faith and gone to the promised land. Right. He's given them victory. They have, they're having victory here, and but mean, it's, it's too late, sadly, for like, what they... It's crazy. Like, what's, what's Israel's name mean, too, right? Yeah, God fights for them. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just like, they don't or, get or, it. Or God fights with them. It's yeah. hard to... Right? But at this, you're or like, God, God would have been fighting for you, but instead you decided to fight yeah. with God. So Yeah, but God fights, and he's going to fight for his people, the, the people that he loves and he's promised to, and it's like, man, yeah. don't trust God. Obviously, we do the same thing. We forget, and we, we don't trust God to, to fight for us. Absolutely, yeah. And then we have a big story. You know, we've preached on it at our church before. Um, you know, you've I, you've probably heard the story, but the bronze serpent, right? Mm-hmm. What's up with the bronze serpent? Because again, we're faced with God's wrath and consequences of sin. And what's up with the bronze serpent? Yeah. So what happens is um, they're they're traveling along and they complain again. This is not news. Classic, very, very, classic yeah, Israel classic, complain. Yeah. Um, and they they ask you know we don't we don't want this food we don't have any water you're bringing us out here to die and so it says in chapter twenty one verse six the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died were the serpents that, like literally like little flame serpents no I th- I think that the idea here is that when they bite you it's it's like you're you know on fire. Poison, poisonous, venomous, Burns. yeah, you know, poison, venomous. Because it'd be pretty cool if they were flaming snakes. That would be that would be really cool. You never Same. know. You Same. never know. Um, but so they repent. They ask for for mercy from Moses. The people do, mm-hmm. and so God gives gives them this command. So verse eight, the Lord said to Moses, "Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live." So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Hmm. This is strange. Very strange. This is a very odd account. And there's a lot of questions about what's going on here. Um, I think the simplest explanation is that God is taking a symbol that is reminiscent of their sin, of the curse that's upon them because of their sin. I mean, the serpent is not only important in this instance. He's also important in the history of, of God's people, obviously, with the original curse of sin. The ancients, the ancient dragon, the serpent, right? Mm-hmm. No, no. So it's a reminder of their sin that they have to look at. Mm. And and when they see that, when they are admitting their sin, in a sense, they're, they're healed. So it's a symbol of their curse that mm. lifts their curse. Um, and be, being a, put, on, put on a pole is important. We'll look at that later. Some people think that maybe this is a picture of the power of Egypt. Interesting. So as they're talking about going back to Egypt all the time, that God takes a power, a picture, which is a, a picture of the power of Egypt, which is a serpent, right? Sign of the royal, you know, Pharaoh's power. And he basically is giving them a reminder of, oh, you want to return back to Egypt. Hmm. Um, so I don't know if that's true or not, but that's one idea as well. Interesting. But the big idea, I think, is just that of having to acknowledge the curse, acknowledge your own failure, right, and turn in faith to God and God's method of salvation. I mean, it's, again, like, I think this is worth talking about, you know, especially through the, this section of the Old Testament is we can look at God's wrath and his justice and be offended, you know. But even in the midst of curse, even in the midst of, you know, God God himself literally sending fiery serpents to punish a people for their crimes against him, like, he's offering a way out. Yeah. He's offering grace. He's offering life, you know, if you would turn to him and be obedient, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, again, whenever you see God's wrath, we can always see the grace and the love of God behind him. Yeah. So, and it's by the serpent that's lifted up for them. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, cool. So, so yeah, so the, the re- there's real hope in these chapters, right? I, I think because we can see that Israel is not fully falling apart, even in, even in their failures. Mm. The fact that they're having military victories is very significant. Right. That God still has a plan for them. He's still going to use them. But the undercurrent through all of this is that Israel is still very sinful. Right. And that's just not going to stop anytime soon. Right. Not for a couple thousand years. Well, yeah. No. Even then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, cool. So, and then we have uh, another big story, uh, another big part of the story, and we have Balaam. Balaam. Yeah. What an interesting guy Balaam is. When you read the story of Balaam, I wonder as you as you were reading it, maybe this last week, mm-hmm. um, did did people actually see the see Balaam as a bad guy mm. or kind of a good guy? Right. Every time I read the story of Balaam, I I think, man, there's a lot of things about Balaam that seems like seems like he might be, might be a good guy. Mm-hmm. But in the in the history of the Bible, in the, in the scope of the Bible, he's unequivocally considered a horrifically evil person. Right. So that's that's just something we need to be thinking about as we're reading it, which is, it is very hard to see at first. Yeah. So we'll, we'll kind of get to there. But but the people of Israel are at, on the plains of Moab now. Right? They've, they've moved in their journey. Who's Moab? So Moab is the son of Lot by one yep. of his daughters. Yep. So if you don't remember this, Genesis 19, you can go back and, and read one of the craziest, weirdest stories in the Bible, which is saying a lot. Yep. Um, but Lot is... Got, essentially, his, he's drugged by his daughters so they can sleep with him. God does not want this. And then Just they so name, know. yeah. And then when they have kids, they name their their kids these kind of ironic names, I guess. So Ammon, right, which is um, you know son of my people, right. So it's kind of like a son of my like incest joke. I, I mean, maybe it's not a joke. Maybe it's serious. But then Moab is who is my father? Who is my father? So. Yeah, kind of, kind of, yeah. Which is like, oh, your grandpa slash uncle is also your father. So, anyway, uh, <laughs> bizarre, weird, gross stuff. So Moab, there's a history there as well. They're related to Israel, right? Um, but Moab is threatened by Israel. They're this nation now. They're also to the east of of Israel, on the east eastern side of the Jordan, in in modern day Jordan. Mm. That's where they they would dwell. And in chapter 22, we see that the king of uh, Balak goes to to hire Balaam, who is a pagan prophet, yep. essentially. Go curse them, so we win. <laughs> yeah, so he's known for having this supernatural power, and he says in, in verse 6 to Balaam, he sends messengers to him, he says, Come now, curse this people, Israel, for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. That's a really interesting phrase, right? That that and that should ring a bell for for all of us as we're reading this because it goes back to Genesis, right? It it kind of has echoes of what God said to Abraham, right? Which that whoever whoever blesses you will be blessed, whoever curses you will be cursed, right? Mm-hmm. So, but here this king in this context is ascribing that kind of power, which is only God's, mm-hmm. to Balaam, right? You have this power to determine the fate of people. By your words, mm-hmm. um, Balaam only has that if God allows him to have that. That's what we're going to see in this in the story. Right, God is absolutely in control, and so in verse twelve, so what happens is basically these these elders of Moab come to him. They try to try to persuade Balaam to to you know fight on their behalf through his spiritual powers, and 
um, God speaks to Balaam in a dream that night, and he says, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Mm. So Balaam does what God says, right? He, he, yeah, which again, you're talking about the contrast. Like, yeah. yeah, why is this guy, is he good? Is he bad? What, what's yeah, exactly. So he says to them, I can't go with you. And then they, verse 15, it says, once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable <laughs> than these. Try to win him over, try to butter him up. Um, so, you know, and I like his response in verse 18, right? He says to the servants of, Balaam says to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord, my God, to do less or more. Is this like a hint from Balaam? <laughs> Even if you were to give me a brand new Tesla, I could not, I couldn't even think about going with you guys. I don't know. But the, the problem is, though, he's, he ends up saying to them, go ahead, stay here tonight. I'm going to ask God again. Wait for him again. <laughs> Let's see if God changes his yeah, mind. Yeah, we'll just, we'll just see. We'll see if God changes his mind. So this is a guy who he understands God's authority. He understands where power comes from ultimately, even though he's a sinful guy. Right. Um, and he understands that God's word will stand. Right. And this is important for us. I mean, as a guy who is a pagan who doesn't fear God in a lot of ways, he actually has a better understanding of God than some, some people who claim to be Christians today, right, well, who, who want to change God's word. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look at, I mean, I'm not connecting this too much, but you look at the book of Job, and Satan even understands this, that he has to be obedient to God and his, his will. Right? It's bizarre. Yeah, yeah. It's really bizarre to see that, that there is understanding of the supremacy of God, even as they are trying to undermine God. Yeah. And Balaam will, in certain ways, do that later on. 100%, but, yeah. So God, go, go, you know, he asks God again, and this time God says, verse 20, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. Mm -hmm. So God now, he seems to change his mind, um, and then he gets on his, his donkey and begins the journey with the princes of Moab. And then in verse 22, we see that God... God's anger was kindled because he went. That's a, that's a really interesting phrase, right? right? So, so why is it that God is angry with them? Well, it's because God had already given him an answer and, and Balaam ignored it, right? Mm. Or he wanted a second opinion right. from God. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense. But So God is angry with him because he has, in his heart, he wants to disobey God. Mm. So what happens is, as he's riding his donkey along, right? This is like one of the favorite... Sunday school stories when you're a kid, right? But the donkey is blocked by the angel of the Lord, right? With sword in hand, right? This terrible, fearful figure. Right. The donkey sees the angel of the Lord and he veers off course. And, and Balaam gets angry and hits the donkey eventually, right? It happens multiple times. Right. And really, the, the creature is having the proper response to seeing God. <laughs> Right, the, the, the donkey sees God, which sees, is comical. Sees the angel of the Lord, because Balaam's yeah. supposed to be the, like, oh, this he's the guy who can curse and bless. Right? Yes, very very <laughs> powerful guy. But Balaam is is blind, doesn't see, um, and it's really a picture of the fact that he's disobedient to God. Hmm. So in verses twenty seven and twenty eight, what we see is when when the, it says when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. So this is the third, this is the last time, right? And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, <laughs> What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And I love this because Balaam doesn't miss a beat in this conversation. He says, Balaam says to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me, right? As he's speaking to a donkey, You've made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden 
all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. <laughs> I just love the dialogue happening. Yeah. And no, there's nothing like that's, that's, you know, seems weird, at least in the conversation. It's like a Disney movie, all animals are talking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Shrek. Um, <laughs> so, so then God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel of the Lord and he falls down on his face and the angel of the Lord challenges him. And, and then, you know, it says, basically, God's saying, your way is perverse. Um, what you're doing is wrong. And so in verse 34, Balaam says to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. One word there was wrong, which is if. Yeah. Like, Balaam knows it's evil. Right. But he's still trying to find a way to do his sinful desire hmm. and get God to, to allow him to go. Right. Even though God's made so clear that, you know, he says, if, you, if your donkey hadn't stopped, I would have killed you. Right. So you, you owe this to your donkey. So, but he said, what God says is, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So God's going to show that his word is supreme. Mm-hmm. So very, very strange account. Very, very strange account. It's great. Animals can talk. God has power to do all things, I guess. That's right. And then we get into chapter 23. We have these oracles. What are these about? Um, yeah, we have so a few different oracles, right? So, so what we've seen from the last account is we really see that you know a donkey is obedient, a priest is disobedient, a right. donkey can see, a prophet is blind, a donkey speaks truthfully, a prophet is speaking untruthfully. Right. So, I mean, really, we, we're seeing a setup here that God can use anyone for His purposes. Yeah, Amen. Yeah. That's really the takeaway from that story, and it, it will see that fulfilled in this section as well. God's going to force Balaam to speak only the truth about his people. Mm-hmm. So the first, so basically Balaam delivers four oracles for the prince, uh, for the king, right, Balak. And he's told Balak, I can only speak God's word. I can't, I'm bound to that. I can only speak what God allows me to speak. And Balak's okay with that. He thinks, I mean, you gotta understand, Balak's experience of gods to this point is that a god is a thing that sits on your shelf that right. you can manipulate. Right. It's a power at work in the world that you can, through your own deeds, mm. force to do certain things for you. Right. He doesn't understand what God really is. He doesn't understand right. the, the supreme God. He doesn't understand Yahweh. Yeah, he just wants to win battles and to not lose against the Israelites. Yeah. yeah. So Balaam has four oracles. The first one is in verses 7 through 12. And, uh, and he says in it, verse, verse 7, he says, from, from Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. And, and this is what the king said, which is, come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. Verse 8, Balaam says, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? Hmm. How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? So this is going to be a theme. He's saying, I can't go against God's wishes. This goes back to Genesis chapter 12 Mm -hmm. and that call of Abraham where he says, I'm going to bless you. And whoever blesses you will be blessed. Whoever curses you will be cursed. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Hmm. He's, he's bringing back to mind that promise, which is that God, in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, is still faithful to his covenant to Abraham Amen. hundreds of years before. Yeah, And we, we see echoes also of Exodus 19, that God called us people to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, all these things, right? Um, so... That's what Balaam is echoing, that that's what's true of Israel now, that God's going to save them just as he has in the past. Mm. So that's the first oracle. The second oracle, we see he's more focused on God's work in the Exodus. So this is in verses 18 
um, to 24 of, of chapter 23. Um, but he's focusing on the fact that God has rescued them out of Egypt and that God is going to continue to bless. Mm-hmm. Right? Verse 20 says again, Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed. I cannot revoke it. So Balaam is speaking in a way that he's speaking the truth of God. And Balak's response is priceless. I love his response in verse 25. He says, because he's tried to say, okay, curse them. Okay, you're not cursing them. Why aren't you cursing them? He's angry. Okay, let's move to a different location. Maybe from here you can curse them. (laughs) But Balaam still is doing this. In verse 25, Balak says to Balaam, do not curse them at all and do not bless them at all. Mm. (laughs) So (laughs) let's just, okay, time out. Let's just stop all of this talking at all. Just you're doing me more damage than good. Just stop. And Balaam's response is, verse 26, Did I not tell you all that the Lord says that I must do? So he's saying, I'm, I'm bound to say what God told me to say. To say. Um, you can't manipulate this. But verse 27, Balak says, Okay, let's move to a new location, mm-hmm. and we'll see if we can get a different angle, and maybe God will change his mind or something. Right. It's, it's silly, but... And then we got the third one. The third one, yeah, we see... Um, we see a focus on the future king of Israel. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're seeing this kind of build, um, and he's pointing more towards a future ruler. And then the final oracle is the fourth oracle, which is the most famous, starting in verse 15. And actually in verse 14, we see that he he tells ba- Balak um, that he's going to speak to them of what this people will be in the latter days. Mm. That's a key phrase we'll see throughout the, throughout the Bible. So he's speaking to the final era or epic in human history, which is with the coming of Christ, right? right? So in verse 15, we see this final oracle. And he says these words, verse 17, says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab hmm. and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now he's, he's speaking to... The king of Moab. So <laughs> this is not it's not great. Like, no, don't say that. A, a king's gonna come who's gonna who's gonna destroy you. This is gonna be the future for for, uh, for Moab. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel's going is is doing valiantly, and from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Yep. So we see a, a, a prediction of someone who will arise a scepter and a star mm. a star so a scepter echoes back to genesis 49 yep right this the blessing of of jacob on his like ne- when he's nearing death and he, he talks about how judah is going to have a scepter right the scepter shall not depart from judah very important phrase and so we see here Mo, uh balaam emphasizing the same thing that there's going to be a scepter meaning not just a literal you know mm-hmm. stick but it's a symbol of royal power right so a king is going to come is the idea from israel who will rule the world will destroy the evil powers of this world including moab Mm -hmm. and the sign of that coming will be through a star that's kind of what it's pointing to a star arising and a scepter coming out of of israel so so yeah we, we see some i mean some really big important prophecies happening here yeah. that obviously have implications for the, the rest of Scripture right. in big ways. 100%. Now, like, Israel doesn't really know what's going on right now, though, in the story, right? And it's kind of the story has shifted a little bit from, you know, God and Israel, and all of a sudden we have this discourse 
with Balaam and this king. So um, this yeah, is yeah. happening without all of them being even aware of it. Yeah, so Israel's on the plains of Moab, right? and Balak and Balaam and the princes of Moab are up on a mountain, hmm. and they're overlooking you know, part of this massive group hmm. of people. Yeah, so they don't have any idea, from all we can tell, they have no idea that Balaam is there, that he's trying to curse them, that this massive power that they should be scared of, mm-hmm. at least the ancient people would have been scared of this guy, right? That that power is working against them. They don't even know that. And mm. yet God is protecting them right? and orchestrating events that actually um, he demonstrates that his word is more powerful, that his word will endure, that his promise, his covenant with them will will remain strong. Right. And a, a great, you know, just applicable reminder for us that God's working for us even if we can't see it in our lives today, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so let's bring it back around to that question that we addressed earlier. Balaam seems like kind of a faithful guy right now. Like some of the things that he's saying are pretty awesome, and it seems like he's on God's side. (laughs) It seems like he's on Israel's side, at least, you know, to some degree. So why is the Bible, you know, why does the Bible view him as an evil man? Yeah, exactly. So um, it's really strange because what we see so far is it seems like Balaam is a guy who understands God's word it's truth, it's power, and he understands where authority lies. Yeah, I mean, at least no different than like people of Israel who seem to ignore God's word a lot of the time. Yeah, he actually seems to get it much more than they do. So this this initial act with the donkey where it's shown that God can speak through anyone, it seems like Balaam kind of straightens out and does the right thing, speaks God's word, so what's the problem? Well, it's really what happens right after this. Mm. It's, not, it's not stated explicitly until a little bit later in the book, so in chapter 25, what we see is the people start worshiping Baal. Mm-hmm. So uh, Balaam's been trying to curse them, <laughs> unsuccessful. You know, the people jump right into curse, in a sense, by committing sin. Right. So how did that happen? Well, we see later on in the book of, of uh, Numbers that this happened because of Balaam. So chapter 31 of Numbers, verse 16, it says, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord, in the incident at Peor, and so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. So mm. Balaam, what we can piece together is that Balaam, knowing that he couldn't curse God through his words, um, uses Israel's sin against them. Mm. So what he does is he sends in women to tempt the men into idolatry, right. and they have sort of this, you know, uh, sexual... Uh, perverse like worship, you know. Uh, you know, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So there's the idolatry and sexual morality, all this stuff being yeah. brought in. And later, I see um, Balaam is is killed. So in this chapter, in verse 8, 31 8, they end up killing Balaam mm-hmm. because of this. But we see the same thing. This is how he's rem- remembered later on in scripture as well. In the book of Jude, right, there's, there's talk of um, Balaam's error, you know, that people walked in Balaam's. Error and in Second Peter, some some really harsh words are said against against Balaam. He's sort of mm. the prototype of evil, right? He says they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing, mm. but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So this is a picture of in Peter's own day of people who are following the same kind of of immorality. Mm. Crazy. So yeah, so Balaam. Couldn't use God's word, so he uses Israel's sin, and he brings them into destruction in certain ways mm. at, at uh, Peor. So going back to that, that's an important section as well. Um, 
at, at Baal Peor, basically what happens is, as you know, we mentioned, people, they begin to whore with the daughters of Moab. Um, they're doing sacrifices to false gods. Right. This is the this is the point where Baal worship is introduced mm. to Israel. Yeah, because this, this is what we I mean, keep seeing throughout the Old Testament. Right? Yes, I mean this will be a a snare for them for the the rest until the exile. Right. Basically, I mean this is Baal is a big deal, and um, Baal is is you know a bloodthirsty god. His wife, who's um, identified sometimes with Asherah or Ashtoreth later on in the Bible. Um, they were worshipped through sexual perversion, basically. So this is this is the the stuff that God warned them against. Do not get involved in these kinds of practices, and they're doing it. So Phineas actually responds. So what happens is um, God or Moses calls the people to, to faithfulness. Um, he says to the judges of Israel in verse five, "Kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor." Mm-hmm. And then what happens is they, they're doing this, they're cleansing the people of the sin, and it says in verse 6 that a man and woman basically, or a man brings a Midianite woman in the midst of the entire entire assembly um, to his tent. So he's, he's just like walking through like, I'm going to commit sexual morality with this woman. Isn't it great? Right? Just, just blatant, right. brazen sin. And so Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the grandson of Aaron, sees it picks up a spear, and skewers both of them through, <laughs> essentially, right? So, um, yeah, shish kebab with two people on it. Yeah. And it says, so, he, so it says in verse 8, he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly, thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Mm. So that action atones for the sin of Israel. Him impaling these two people um, and, and killing the evildoer, stops the plague Mm. it's a very interesting uh picture and for this phineas is commended and said essentially that the high priesthood will then go go through him Mm. so so he's commended because really this is the kind of behavior god wants out of his priests yeah which is again so foreign to us but someone who's zealous for purity right and also is making atonement for the people so this is i mean a real picture of what the priest is supposed to be about right right um, doing away with evil, and in this act of, of shedding the blood of the guilty, he's bringing atonement for the people of Israel. So it's, it's a very interesting case. So, um, so anyway, so we see that overall Israel is is not committed to God. Right. Yeah. And again, we keep seeing this theme pop up: Israel's unfaithfulness at every turn. And you know, you get glimpses of faithfulness, but ultimately. As we keep saying, we're going to see God's faithfulness renewed again and again. So God is yeah. faithful. God's people are generally not faithful. Yeah. But God's promises will continue and be fulfilled. Yeah. So what yeah. do we, when we see it kind of bookends, you know, the book of Numbers is a census too. So the yeah. census comes back in. Why is the census done again? So, we, yeah, we see that God is, as we said, still faithful to his people. He's raising up a new generation that's going to come into the land. Mm-hmm. So this is the... As you said, the bookend from the from the first census. Mm-hmm. So God's people have been through forty years. They've seen failure, but they've seen God's faithfulness, and now God is raising up an army to go into the land of Israel, right, the land of Canaan, to conquer. So, um, so yeah. So this is this is um, kind of the important way to resolve where the book is headed, right? But the book doesn't really end here. There's a few other things that are important to point out. Uh, one is chapter twenty-seven, where you have um, the daughters of Zelophehad. They're actually mentioned here. They're mentioned later in the book as well. Mm-hmm. 
so they're very important figures in this book. It's kind of weird. So, yeah, so basically, briefly, what's their story? Yeah. Yeah. So basically, this is these these uh, women are daughters of a man who had no sons. Hmm. So this is this is sort of maybe your future. I don't know. I don't want to call it too early, but probably two you know, daughters, two two daughters. Same came so. with the, the Torchios, Dawson, yeah, and Megan. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, you know, it's a great thing. Daughters are awesome. Yeah, it's great. Daughters. Expensive weddings. That's yeah. Problem. But back then, <laughs> if you if you didn't have sons, then who was going to inherit the land? Right. right. It was a patriarchal society, so this is a problem, and so they want to figure out how they can deal with their land inheritance they're going to be given if their father is not there. Mm-hmm. And so we do see, I mean, we do see in this, we see a high value uh, on women, right? That's different than other cultures, that they are given an inheritance um, that their father would have gotten. That's, that's unusual, They're right. very, to say the least, right, in that time. Right. So we see a high value of women, but really the point of this is that it's a good sign that they're discussing this because it shows that God is going to bring them into the land and that they have faith mm. that God will bring them into the land. That's right. very important because what we saw earlier was the opposite. Right. So the daughters of Zelophehad is important for that reason. They're talking as if the land is already theirs. Right. They want to inherit that land. Yeah. And so Moses is is blessing them for that. And God is as well. That they're gonna they're gonna have um, you know be part of the history of Israel. Mm. Yeah, amen. Bringing in God bringing in people. We see some tribes and also settling down um, beyond the Jordan, right? Getting some some land on the east side of the Jordan. Right. And how God deals with that. Um, that there is a threat there of maybe they're not going to go in and conquer the Holy Land. And so there's a, there's a pledge made that they will go in and help people conquer before they come back and, mm-hmm. and settle in these lands east of Jordan. But really, it was, it was kind of a bad call to settle east of Jordan because <laughs> the land is constantly shrinking by conquest. And so, right. yeah, so they, they, they're gone pretty quickly. But, um, awesome. And then the last thing that stands out that is important is um, the cities for the Levites at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And the thing I wanted to point out here was just the importance of the cities of refuge. So really, there's, there's six cities of refuge given to the Levites where if somebody has committed manslaughter, right, unintentional um, killing of somebody else, not murder, which would be intentional killing, but yeah, well. someone who's in that state can run and get shelter in mm. the city of refuge. So they drop like a piano on an Israelite or something exactly, like that. Exactly, yeah, yeah, which was, I'm sure, very common back yeah. then, pianos being dropped. Um, <laughs> but they could run there and be safe and... Um, that this was to make sure that there wasn't sort of you know uh, revenge being taken on people that mm. might have accidentally committed committed uh, manslaughter, and they are forced to stay in that city until the death of the high priest. Mm. So this is important because it shows the death of the high priest in some way is significant mm. for releasing someone of their the penalty of their sin. Right. So, so yeah. So that's that's what we see at the end of the book, and we're set up for what is really one of the most important books in the Old Testament, top three probably, Deuteronomy, right. which I'm excited to get into oh, yeah. next week. Amen. As we do each week, we're examining the text, we're kind of answering some harder questions, giving you the overall story, but we also connect it to the gospel. How does the New Testament and the work of Jesus Christ relate to these stories, and how is the good news, even shadowy, uh, even shadowy form, found in these texts? Yeah. So just taking it in kind of a reverse order from what I just talked about, obviously that picture of the death of the high priest absolving people of their guilt in some sense and freeing them from this um, imprisonment in this in the city is a pointer to what Jesus is going to do. Right. Right. That his death as our high priest 
is significant. Right. Um, and it's going to, obviously he's the sacrifice, but he's also the priest. Mm-hmm. So that's one, you know, echo that we see of the gospel. Obviously Balaam's prophecies, um, huge implications in the life of Jesus, right. right? That the wise men know to follow this star to Jesus to find where he is because of Balaam's prophecy. Right. So God uses this pagan to, to speak to this ruler that will arise mm. who is clearly Jesus Christ. Right. That's clearly fulfilled in Jesus. But one of the more uh, obscure, but I think important references um, to the gospel from Numbers is in John chapter 3. Right, probably most people listening to this know John three sixteen. If not by heart, they know the reference. Right, right. But do they know John three fourteen and fifteen? Right, right before this, which leads up to John three sixteen, and it's and it references what we just saw in Numbers. Right, so John three fourteen, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, mm. that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Yeah, so Jesus is relating himself to the snake here. Yeah, he's, he's calling himself the snake. When he says, Son of Man, he's speaking to himself, of himself. And then he says, For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, mm-hmm. right? So how is, how is Jesus relating himself to the serpent? Mm-hmm. And, and the serpent that's in, in uh, Numbers, it's right. very strange, yeah. right? But what we seem to be saying, first of all, obviously there's an emphasis on the lifting up of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That when he's put on the cross, he's lifted up for the whole world to see. But what happens to Jesus when he's on the cross is that he actually embodies the curse for sin. Mm-hmm. He embodies the punishment for sin. He becomes a thing that is so despised in the eyes of the world right. because he's facing the punishment of, of a criminal, right. of the worst kind of criminal. So he's, he has that sort of stigma, and he has the, the ultimate shame of the, the sins of the world being placed onto him. Mm-hmm. Our guilt, you know, what we did. So when we see Jesus on the cross, we're seeing it a picture of our own sin, of the curse that right. we have caused in this world because of what we've done. Right. So just like that serpent was lifted up and the people could see it and see, this was this is my curse, this mm. is my guilt, and right. we're reminded of that in the same way in Jesus, we see the same thing. Mm. He's lifted up because that's what you and I deserved. Right. Now, of course, that leads to life and forgiveness as right. Jesus is clear. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end, which is, <laughs> you're terrible. It's It shows us that Jesus took that for us so we could be freed from it, so we could be healed, so we could be forgiven. Yeah, amen. And what's up with um, do, do the the prophecies of Balaam? How do they relate to the gospel of Jesus? Well, yeah, as as I mentioned, you know, about his, his the birth of Jesus being foretold by the star that would lead the wise men there, right? right? And and the fact that he's going to be from the line of Judah and hold that scepter. Yeah, amen. Yeah, yeah. and um, cities of refuge. We talk about that. Yeah, we talked about that already. No, oh, yep. dang. Yeah, man, we're getting through this, man. Awesome. Well, that's all we got for Daily Gospel. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again next week, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ.